Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2020, volume 58, number four. My name is David Fasakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month is called Lung Volume in COPD, When Less is More. So what's this one about? So this is an editorial written by Joe Congleton about the surgical removal of um, lung tissue in patients with COPD to actually improve uh, lung function, exercise capacity and quality of life. Uh, What's the background to this? Is this something that's new? So apparently not. Apparently even in the 1950s there were trials of this surgery, um, but there was a very high mortality rate at that time. And then the technique was uh, rather reviewed and looked at again by a surgeon called Joel Cooper, who'd done a lot of work with uh, lung transplants, and he began to look at uh, this surgical technique in the 1990s. And since then, it's obviously uh, there's been some interest in it and some quite interesting research, and NICE included the idea of lung volume reduction surgery in its 2018 COPD update. Now, it feels a bit counterintuitive that for people with lung disease, you want to remove some of their lung. So what's the principle behind it? Well, apparently the issue here is hyperinflation. So if you have particular areas of the lung that are hyperinflating, they can compress other more healthier areas of the lung. And in addition, your diaphragm may become tented and not be able to function effectively. So by removing these areas of hyperinflation or using uh, one-way valves um, to reduce this hyperinflation, you can allow the diaphragm to return to its normal shape and healthier elements of the lung to um, expand and contribute more to lung function. So is this for everybody or just a highly selected group of patients? Yes, as the as your your question implies, this this is tricky. So Joe clearly talks about the fact that you need very significant multidisciplinary teams to assess patients for those where surgery will be most effective. And uh, she talks about um, the nice criteria for this assessment. Um, and I think the issue that she puts very clearly in the editorial is that first of all. I think probably neither primary care nor perhaps pulmonary rehab have actually woken up to the fact that we need to be asking ourselves in patients with severe COPD, would they be someone who might be suitable for surgery? And then actually, where is the nearest um, tertiary centre for this sort of work to be done? And is this type of surgery widely available? Or still quite limited? So this seems to be limited. I think we, we looked at some a study that suggested that perhaps 0.2% of patients, um, if you use very stringent criteria, would be candidates for surgery. So that's about perhaps 2,500 to 3,000 patients in the UK. At the moment, we think there's about eight centres in the UK that would do this sort of work. So it's still very limited. But I think the point that Joe makes is I don't think we're even thinking about it at the moment. And this is perhaps a call to wake up to the new NICE guidance and actually start looking for these patients and then perhaps seeing where that takes us. Okay, thank you very much. So this month, we've published a commentary on a trial of low-dose amitriptyline for the management of low back pain. And what does this show? Yeah, so this is really interesting because I think a lot of um, primary care GPs uh, and and secondary care consultants looking after patients with back pain have often considered amitriptyline as an option. And this was a a randomised clinical trial in JAMA Internal Medicine. Australian study, they took about 150-odd patients with low back pain for at least three months, and they randomized them to either 25 milligrams of amitriptyline 
or benztropine. Uh, um, they use benztropine as a sort of placebo side because it's a Parkinson's disease, uh, disease drug with very similar side effect profile to tricyclics like amitriptyline. So the idea behind it was that patients would get a similar side effect profile but not have any of the sort of possible beneficial effect of amitriptyline. And what outcomes did they study? Yeah, so they did the classic outcomes, um, a visual um, analogue scale of uh, 100 millimetres of intensity of pain. They also looked at a disability uh, gradient um, as, a, as a secondary outcome as well. So what were the findings? Yes, I mean, the, the findings basically were amitriptyline didn't really make any difference. Uh, certainly as far as the pain differences were concerned, at three and six months there was no statistical difference significant difference the authors suggested there was a slight non-statistical significant difference at six months there was a, a statistically significant improvement in disability at three months in the amitriptyline group but as there was only a 1.6 point improvement in the disability scale and the um, minimum clinically important difference is thought to be three Although it was statistically significant, it wasn't thought to be clinically significant. So basically, not a lot of difference. The, the authors were quite positive, suggesting that there was some evidence for amitriptyline and actually it should be considered. I have to say, I think if you look at the group of patients they chose, the mean duration the patients had had back pain for was 10 years. 25% of them had work absence as a result of that back pain and 85% what was called work hindrance. I think this is a group of patients where actually chemicals such as opioids, um, you know, painkillers, anti-inflammatories, I suspect, you know, this is a very different kettle of fish perhaps from the, the average patient we see um, with back pain. So I think, you know, there's elements here of this is a very significantly perhaps impaired group of patients. Um, and in that group, amitriptyline isn't effective. So how does this help us with where amitriptyline sits in the management of low back pain? It's a good question. I think where does any treatment sit in the management of chronic low back pain? Because we know now that opioids are not effective. We know there's issues around the, the pros and cons of using anti-inflammatories. Paracetamol only if helps in perhaps one person in seven or eight, if you look at the numbers needed to treat. So we're dealing with a, a type of pain where I think what we've got to stop doing is imagining there's going to be a pill for this ill. And actually, this is about motivating people. It's about getting them mobile. It's about using other non-drug methods to improve their quality of life and uh, their ability to do what they want to do. Thank you very much. And our main article this month reviews triamcinolone injection in the management of hay fever. So why have we looked at this? Yes, good old Kenalog. Um, I think a lot of us who've been around for a little while will remember when we started out um, Kenalog or triamcinolone um, depot injections being used a lot in patients who perhaps either couldn't tolerate antihistamines or didn't want to tolerate antihistamines. And, you know, the patient uh, feedback was they were always very positive about this lovely idea of having a single injection at the beginning of the hay fever season and being completely symptom free for the whole of their their summer and back in 1999 we looked at this and we looked at the evidence for triamcinolone and really didn't find very much to um, demonstrate its efficacy or its safety um, and we decided to go back and look at that now this year I mean obviously there was a quite a lot of interest in in triamcinolone since a certain cyclist used it in the Tour de France and so we thought it's a useful time 
hay fever season is upon us. You'll see catkins on the hazels. Certainly if you're down south, you will. So I think it was an interesting time to look at the evidence again and say, is there some new evidence that will either be um, positive about triamcinolone or perhaps actually highlight the concerns we've always had about using depot corticosteroids in otherwise pretty healthy people. So was there some more evidence since last time we looked at this subject? Um, I think there was. I mean, there was a systematic review from 2005. I mean, it was sort of not particularly helpful because it compared single doses of dexamethasone, betamethasone, methylprednisolone and triamcinolone. So it was actually comparing all the different sort of steroids. And it, it showed um, from nine randomised controlled trials that there was actually a benefit from taking these drugs for rhinitis. Trouble is, a lot of the outcomes used in the studies were very subjective. They weren't compared with regular treatments uh, and none of them looked at adrenal suppression. So in some respect, that 2005 systematic review has has not been much used to us as, as prescribing doctors. I think what was really helpful, there was a Danish retrospective study that our author details, which I think is really helpful. This was 47,000 patients uh, and they compared... Um, patients who'd taken uh, steroids with those that had immunotherapy. And this highlighted that uh, there was an association in patients taking Tramsin alone with diabetes and osteoporosis. Um, now, these were patients that had to have had at least one injection in April, July over at least three years. So these were, I think, much more likely to be the sort of patients we might see. And at last, we have demonstrated perhaps what everyone's been concerned about, which is that that increases the risk, perhaps, of diabetes and osteoporosis. So the bottom line is that although it may work, and as a steroid, you'd expect it to have an effect, but the benefits don't outweigh the harms, and it doesn't feature in any of the clinical guidelines. No, I mean, there's one, I think the British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology guideline talks about the possible use of oral steroids as an option in severe cases, but they suggest you use them with nasal steroids and a decongestant and only for a very short period, perhaps five or ten days only. So you're right, there really isn't any need to use injectable depot steroids for allergic rhinitis. Thank you. And finally, our case report this month looks at what? So this looks as an SGLT2 inhibitor, dapagliflozin, and an, an episode of uh, euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis in a 51-year-old woman with uh, type 2 diabetes. Um, this one's quite timely, as we had a recent editorial that discussed concerns over diabetic ketoacidosis with these drugs. But that was in type 1 diabetes. This is in type 2. So what happened? Yeah, so she was a 51-year-old woman, uh, was admitted to hospital with a three-day history of vomiting and abdominal pain, um, and the investigations they did picked up um, that she had a metabolic acidosis. Capillary blood sugar at the time of admission was 8.1 millimoles per litre, so you know, not particularly high at all. Urinalysis showed some glycosuria, which of course you would expect for someone who's on an SGLT2 inhibitor, um, but also ketonuria as well. And the story is that they picked up the fact that uh, she started dapagliflozin three days earlier. They stopped it and she, she quickly recovered. 
It's quite useful. Um, the authors do look at some other studies on the incidents and issues around DKA in uh, dapagliflozin and other SGLT2 inhibitors, and that's quite a useful reminder to us. They looked at uh, meta-analysis of two uh, in 2017 of 34 cases, and they found that the average blood sugar level in these patients was only 14. And I think that's the point. You know, don't be uh, uh, mislaid or, or, or mi don't misunderstand that if you know, you've know got a pretty average blood sugar that they could still have DKA. The other interesting thing is the time of onset. I mean, I'd always imagine these patients would be on their drugs for some time before they develop DKA. But in this case, it was three days and the FDA published 73 cases and the time of onset was between one day and one year. So I think some really useful um, just points to, to, to remind ourselves of the issues with this particular class of drug. Yes, I think I had a quick look at also at the, the SPC for the drug, and again, it does talk about it, and uses the figure of 14 millimoles per litre oh, as, as, a, as a cutoff. And also looked at the uh, MHRA's drug analysis reports, which suggested that there have been about 340 cases reported uh, out of a total of 3,500 overall reports. So quite, still quite common. It is. And I think, I think what was interesting about this case is this woman had actually been on it for three months, three years earlier, as part of the Energize trial. And she hadn't developed DKA at that time and I was left looking at the drugs that she was on when she was admitted which included um, sertraline, lansoprazole, pregabalin, solifenacin, liraglutide, pravastatin and propranolol and I was left thinking I wonder if there's a bit of an interaction going on here which has actually made her more prone to the DKA this time than it was three years earlier. I don't know it was just a really interesting you know like everything with polypharmacy you know, what this tells us is yellow card it because it may not be obvious to us that there's an issue, but if we're all yellow carding, it may become very clear to someone else what the interactions are. That's great. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We release a new podcast each month to coincide with the publication of DTB online, and you can subscribe to it through your usual podcast provider. Please leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes podcast page. It would be great to have your feedback.